Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. In 1954, I was a fairly normal 14-year-old, enjoying sports, unhealthy food, and loud music. But even then I realized that there were two ways in which I was different from the other guys. I was attracted to the idea of serving in government, and I was attracted to the other guys. So begins Barney Frank's memory, uh, memory, listen to me, memoir, and he joins me now. Hey, Congressman, great to have you here. I enjoyed your book. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. So what was the plan? You're 14 years old. You know there are two things that are different about you. How did you intend to handle the latter of them, meaning the interest in the other guys? I uh, thought at that time that I would simply ignore it. Not obviously the wisest choice, but at that point, you know, it's it's, it's all new to me. I I just discovered these feelings. Uh, I've never acted on them, and so I figure, well, I'll just never tell anybody. I mean, back in 1954, the notion 
of uh, admitting even to my parents that I was gay was just unthinkable. Gay people were were, were totally despised by everybody, and um, so my assumption was uh, I would just I would just conceal the fact that I would have a, uh, a kind of a celibate life. I would be uh, not just closeted but totally self-repressed. Your father passed at, while you were at a young age. You were what in a, your junior year of college. I was, by the way, you know, a side point. Uh, when we complain about the higher cost of medical care, we should factor in that part of that is because we're providing medical care that didn't exist. My father died at 53 in 1960 of a heart attack. I inherited the condition that killed him, but uh, I have been the beneficiary of our new medical treatment. So, uh, you know, I'm 75 with a prognosis uh, that looks pretty good, and it, it just gives me a very clear example of, 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 of that increase in the quality of medical care. In other words, you have the same heart ailment that took down Dad. Right, a lack of a lack of good cholesterol, a genetic lack of good cholesterol. I, I'm intrigued by the story. You didn't tell us too much about it in the book, but when your father passed, you say that you had to turn to friends of his who had mafia connections so as to improve the negotiating position that he had with his partner. What what exactly happened? Well, um, he was he, he and a partner ran a truck stop in Jersey City, New Jersey. People have seen on the waterfront have an accurate depiction of what was going on there. There was a very corrupt local political machine uh, uh, allied with two uh, corrupt unions at the time, the Teamsters under the, the Hoffa regime and the Longshoremen and the Mafia. And uh, you were going to be in a business like that, you, you got along with him. His relationship with his partner became very hostile. And uh, the, heart, the partner was kind of a thug. Uh, as long as my father was there, that was contained. But when my father died very suddenly, uh, the partner thought, hey, he could take advantage, especially because um, he thought he, he had the negotiating ability that he could run the place and he could kind of intimidate us. Well, my father um, had uh, his own connections to the mafia. Being Jewish, he was uh, never eligible. And, you know, he was not himself a full active guy there. But he had given a, uh, a, a kind of a mafia associate a job. Uh, so he could get out of jail on parole, and he sort of was running the place. And uh, they uh, decided that they were going to protect my mother and me because my father had been so good to them. So all of a sudden, the, this partner who thought he was dealing with a widow and some young children, younger, uh, he found himself negotiating with the mafia, so the deal worked out pretty good for us. So you, you came home from Harvard to deal with the tragedy of Dad's passing and to shake things out with the mob. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I would uh, go on, you know, uh, meetings where uh, they would be doing, talking about their business, and then uh, uh, one of them actually offered to set me up uh, if I went to law school in a uh, kind of a shady arrangement, uh, which I uh, quietly just uh, uh, ignored. Does the deal still stand that you cut with Sam Huntington, that if, if you complete a thesis, you can get the Ph.D.? Well, I think so. Actually, uh, Sam himself passed on. I was being interviewed the other day by a guy you may be familiar with, Chris Leiden, who'd been a major figure in public radio. He was Sam Huntington's brother-in-law. And uh, as near as I can tell, yeah, I, I'm the only person who still has that extension. It was kind of, I suppose, a, it was a meeting of, of Boston politics at Harvard, uh, where the mayor of Boston-to-be got his friend and neighbor, the chairman of the Harvard Government Department, to give me that indefinite extension. I, I have to say that the... Uh, the possibility is in no danger of being tested. Yeah, you you wrote that in the book, and I said to myself, why? You're in retirement now. Why, why wouldn't you want to go back and, and close the loop? 
Well, I got to be honest, Mike. You're the first one who's answered the question and gets an answer. I'm not sure I could pass the statistics course. I did. <laughs> I passed all my exams and I, I passed my French exam. But statistics has always been a problem for me. You had a close working relationship with Tip O'Neill, and in the book relative to President Reagan, you write the notion that O'Neill had warm personal feelings for the new president is wrong. What's the real story? Well, I know, and I, 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 Chris Matthews, who was much closer to the speaker O'Neill than I was, Christ, there was some, and maybe I should have recast this, sort of, oh, they, you know, they got along personally. But O'Neill was, uh, I, and I remember this very clearly, contemptuous of what he thought was Reagan being one of those guys who grew up himself poor, and, and in Tip's case, well, but a poor Irish kid, who then becomes rich and forgot what it was like to be poor, and showed no sympathy uh, for poor people. I remember Tip O'Neill once telling me, uh, Really, almost in disgust, and he was telling Reagan how unfair it was that the young kids today, this is in the 80s, couldn't get a college education. It was already starting to become so expensive, and he mentioned this one young woman he knew who uh, had a lot of promise and wasn't going to be able to get a college education. And Reagan said, oh, all right, Tip, how about it? You and I will pay for it. We can afford it. And O'Neill said, no, you don't understand, Mr. President. It's not just one person. You can't do this by you just being nice to one person you come across. You're, 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 this is a pub for a whole generation of people. And, I, and that was the root of it, is that he felt that uh, it was just wrong for a guy who himself had uh, had experienced uh, economic tough times, uh, who, who was an Irish kid, and understood the kind of feeling of outsiderism, that to become uh, in power and be totally insensitive to, to those problems. There's a great vignette also- in the book. I'm sorry. Also, he did not think of much of Reagan's intellectual ability. Tim O'Neill was a much smarter man than people thought. And uh, uh, he uh, he used to play at this kind of caricature of himself that served him well, so people would underestimate him. But he, he was always, uh, uh, he was struck that when he would go and discuss the policy issue with Reagan, Reagan had to be reading off note cards, and sometimes he'd get his note cards wrong and wouldn't know what he was talking about. This is Barney Frank. We're discussing his brand new memoir titled Frank. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. 
Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. There's a great vignette in the book, speaking of Chris Matthews, where you've explained to the speaker that, you know, you're ready to come out. I don't want to give away the punchline here. And he expresses that to Chris Matthews. What is it that Tip O'Neill tells him? He says, uh, pal, we're going to have to deal with the press. They tell me that Bally Frank's going to come out of the room. The room. <laughs> what room yeah, was no, it? You know, well, it was, um, you know, it was typical of Tip O'Neill. He, he always got the music right, in my judgment. Sometimes the words get a little bit of a problem. He was an old-style pal, very successful in the old ways, who unusually was adaptable in the future. And when Tip expressed regret to me about my uh, impending disclosure that I was gay, it was not because of any prejudice on his part. He was just afraid it was going to hurt my political career. So your modus operandi on this issue when you first get to D.C. is that you're going to, as you write in the book, you're going to adopt a hybrid status. You will be out privately to other LGBT people, but not publicly to your colleagues. How how much in the loop were those colleagues nevertheless? A few were. Most were not, because I basically... uh... Uh, kept this separate from them. And one of the things I found is not surprising. You know, people who are who are members of a particular group, whether it's a profession or a, uh, an ethnic group or whatever, uh, tend to recognize a, a fellow member more than, than complete outsiders. So increasingly gay people knew I was gay, but uh, straight people didn't. Well, part of it had to do with, with stereotypes uh, early on. I, I'm a nervous eater. When I'm under uh, stress, I eat a lot. So after two tough campaigns in 1980 and 1982, I was very overweight. When you're overweight like that, it's hard to find clothes that, that, that look good. 
Um, one reporter once wrote that I was wearing an ill-fitting suit. My response was that it was a perfectly well-fitting suit. It's just I wasn't the one it fit. And uh, <laughs> so I did not conform to the stereotypes people had of gay men. Uh, and so to watch the straight people, that kind of gave me a, uh, an unasked-for cover. Um, as uh, 84, 85, by the mid-'80s, though, uh, it was generally known among a lot of people, including the media. And one of the things that struck me at the time was a number of my friends in Congress, uh, people who were very pro-equality for lesbian and gay people themselves, who said, look, we hear you're thinking about this. Please don't do it. And the, it wasn't because they were homophobic in any way. What they were saying was, we know you feel this is important to you personally, but if you are identified as gay, if you're the first member of Congress to volunteer that you're gay, your ability to be effective on other issues will be diminished. You won't be a good advocate for low-income rental housing or for uh, 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 environmental cleanup or reducing excessive military expenditure. And my answer to them was, I, I can't say you're wrong. I hope you're wrong. But I, I just couldn't live like that. So, yeah, by, by, I'd say by 85, there, there was a pretty good knowledge well, among straight well, people. Tip, Tip told you that he was sorry to hear it because he thought you would become, quote-unquote, the first Jewish speaker. Would you have become the first Jewish speaker but for this revelation? I would have been in the mix. You know, you can never be sure. Um, but, yeah, you know, speaking immodestly, um, uh, look, I, I am aware of a lot of weaknesses I have, but I have some strengths, and legislating plays to my strengths. As I said, I, I was a better legislator than scholar because I have a short attention span. That's hard to, to, to that doesn't help you when you're trying to write a serious, thoughtful a tome of scholarship, but it's very important when you have to deal with seven or eight issues in the course of a few hours. So uh, I, I think I would have been on the leadership ladder. You know, it's always, you're never sure who exactly gets it. But yeah, I, I, I was good at legislating, and uh, I think I would have been in that mix. Congressman, I, I thought this was really interesting. When you decide, as Tip O'Neill would say, that it was time to come out of the room, now the question arises, how are you going to do it? And it was more difficult than one might think because there was a no-outing rule that existed at the time. How did that rule function, and how did you resolve this with the Globe? Michael, I'm glad you brought that up. Not surprising because when you were a student of this whole thing, I, I honestly believe that uh, the story of my outing ought to be taught uh, as kind of journalism history, but not entirely that. The rule that developed... Uh, among media, starting in the 70s when people began to talk about uh, UK issues, was that they would not report that a prominent public figure, an athlete, an entertainer, or a politician, or similar, they would not report that he or she was gay um, unless there was some other event that happened which made that relevant. Sadly, what that meant was the only people who were known to be gay were people who were involved in some kind of misfortune, some scandal involving their sexuality, or they had AIDS. So by the mid-80s, that was where we were. And I wanted to break out of that. I wanted to tell people that I was gay. But I was still worried. This is the 80s where we had still a lot of progress to make. I was afraid, as my colleagues had told me, that if people knew that I was gay, that I would be diminished in my ability to do other things. So I, I adopted what I called the minimization strategy. I was going to acknowledge being gay, but at the same time, I was going to say it wasn't a big deal, it wasn't very important. And so I did not want to be the one to announce it, because how can you announce something and then say to people, oh, but don't pay any attention to it? They have an obvious answer. Well, if you didn't want me to pay any attention to it, why'd you tell me? 
So I told the media, particularly the Boston Globe, which was the dominant paper covering uh, the area where I represented uh, people, that if they asked me, I would tell them. But they had this problem because asking me violated this rule, which, which all media people had to protect our privacy. And I said, well, I'm sorry, it was a kind of a, you know, uh, early version of don't ask, don't tell. It was, if you don't ask, I won't tell. And uh, they, they were worried about that. There was a very important journalist, Bob Healy, who, who kind of supervised the political coverage. And finally, they got worried that there wasn't as much talk about it because, you know, as you asked the question, word was getting around. He was afraid that it was going to leak out. So the Globe gave in and said, okay, we will ask you. Uh, and it was an exception to that policy. I, but it, it was interesting that even with me saying, I want you to ask me, the, the journalistic rule was that you couldn't. And by the way, that, that version of that is still there. I think if people say, ask me, they would now do it. But there is still this sense among the media that they will not uh, initiate that discussion if the person involved doesn't want it. So in the end, they say, are you gay? And you give the answer, yes, yeah, so what? Right. I thought a lot about that. Again, I wanted to be able to say, yes, I'm gay, but it's not a big deal. Uh, parenthetically, I have to say, that was kind of a dumb idea. Um, who wants to have that important part of yourself, your sexuality, be not a big deal? I mean, I was coming out, so it could be a bigger deal. Uh, that's what being in the closet meant, that you did not have the kind of healthy sexual life, emotionally, physically, and other ways that, that, that all human beings would like to have. So uh, this woman asked me, uh, interestingly, the Globe sent the only known lesbian on the staff down there to ask me about it, a woman named Kay Longco. And uh, I really carefully considered my answer. So she said, okay, tape recorders on, Congressman, are you gay? And, and my answer, carrying out this no big deal strategy was, yeah, so what? Hey, not that there's anything wrong with it. Exactly. Well, you know, it was to, it was to kind of uh, downplay it. Maybe also, as I think, retrospectively, you're a little bit embarrassed. You know, I want to come across as kind of a tough guy to kind of to fight this whole stereotype of uh, of gay men as, as, as weak and, and, and effeminate. I'm not, I'm not looking for a, a head count, but were there colleagues of yours who surprised you by saying, hey, Barney, me too, at the time that you came out? No, you know, I, I, I thought that might happen. Um, what happened was there, there were uh, there was one other uh, member of Congress who, who I knew to be gay at the time who was at, not out, and we talked about this. Um, there were some other positive people, but they and I, I was pretty sure who they were, uh, but they, the people who were not out, they did not want to tell me. I think because they were afraid almost of being coming out was coming out was catchy. Seriously, uh, what I found was that some of them. In some ways, distance themselves from me more than before, because they they were afraid, as I said, that there would be kind of this uh, uh, contagion of of being out. Yeah, I I I'm not going to name any names, but in retrospect, I believe I was represented by the individual growing up that you're referring to, and I've thought in later life, and my views have changed as I think as many Americans have changed on these issues. Uh, to one of increasing tolerance that, frankly, I might not have had 30 years ago. But the the fellow who represented my district in Congress for a long time went to great lengths, I think, in an effort to show that he was not gay. And I look back and I think that that had to have been tortuous for him, Absolutely. if I'm right, Awful. in my it, instinct. It imposes a, uh, you know, if you tell me off where you, where you live, I could probably know that. But um, 
here's the deal. And I, I understood. Look, I clearly understood being in, 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 in the closet because I was myself for the first 15 years in elected office. What I was very intolerant of myself were those closeted gay men, because men, lesbians for some reason didn't get into this kind of uh, situation, who would themselves live as a gay man, although very covertly, but then vote for policies that punished other gay people. And I, I very explicitly, Michael, in 1972, when I decided I was going to run for office for the first time, I made uh, two decisions. One, I would be a coward. I would not be honest about who I was. I wouldn't take that prejudice on head-on personally. But two, I would never be a hypocrite. I would always, as a member of, of a legislature making public policy, be a supporter of, 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 of equal treatment and fairness. And I really had no sympathy for those who would themselves were gay, but, but, but tried to cover that up by voting negatively towards other gay people. I, I thought that was an unfortunate hypocrisy. In 2015, should hypocrites be outed? Yes, I think hypocrites, I make a distinction between, between uh, privacy and hypocrisy. And by the way, there's good democratic theory for that. John Locke, British philosopher, wrote the second treatise in civil government. It was very important to Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and the people who wrote our Constitution. And he said he was a pioneer in, 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 in democracy and self-government in the late 17th century. And into the 18th, he said, here's the, here's the principle. A government, to be fair has to be one in which the people who make the rules live under the rules themselves. One definition of tyranny is that you make rules for other people which you do not follow yourself. Now, that became a legitimate issue because there were arguments that Congress would pass these laws about occupational safety or, or uh, diversity in the workforce and exempt ourselves. And I was one of those who, who crusaded to change that. Well, I think that's just an example of it. It's not particularly about being gay. If you are a gay man and you're living that life, and you then vote to punish people who are living that life and taking advantage of your important position to, to, to ignore those rules, you're violating that fundamental principle of democracy, that when you make rules as a, as a legislator, then you better follow them. Hey, Congressman, I, I promise we won't give it all away for free. My favorite response to you coming out of the room was from Senator Alan Simpson. Will you tell that story? Yeah, uh, you know, people ask what happened to bipartisanship, and I, my honest answer is that it, it is really more the Republican Party's move to the right that, that, that hurt that. Al Simpson was a good example. He was the deputy Republican leader of the Senate of Wyoming uh, under Bob Dole, and then he, he got beaten by Trent Lott. He was, uh, Alan Simpson would not pay an abortion, and he was supportive of gay rights, and he, and he lost his position. But he was a very, very funny guy. Uh, he was always telling, uh, always just a great humorist. And he and I had worked closely together. Uh, we were working at the time to change American immigration law, which at the time said, the mid-'80s, that if you were homosexual, you couldn't come to America. And we got rid of that with bipartisan. But uh, he called me the day I got back from being up in Massachusetts and said, Bunny, it's out. i got to apologize. I said, well, what for? He said, knowing me and knowing the way I make jokes about everything, I'm sure I have made anti-gay jokes to you. And I just want to reassure you that in... No way reflects what I think, and I admire you. And you know, at the time, that, that to have a leading Republican say that was a very big deal. I, I love that. A blanket apology. I'm not sure I ever did it, but if I did it, then I want you yeah. to know that I'm sorry. No, knowing me, knowing me, I probably did, as opposed to people who, who, who knew that they did it and tried to deny it. Right. Yeah, you got to respect that. Final question for Barney Frank. Are you really smoking cigars now, or is this a staged picture? No, no, I, I cut back. Um, 
uh, on cigars uh, uh, at the urging of my husband. But I, I actually smoke cigars for much of my life. And I'll tell you one reason I don't do it before. I, I tend to be overweight. You look at those pictures and you see me, you know, carrying about 100 pounds. Um, smoking cigars was one alternative way to deal with stress without eating. And even a doctor told me, you know what? Cigars aren't healthy, but they're healthier than that extra 100 pounds you would otherwise have. But now that I am in a no-stress situation, since I'm not in public office, I've been able to get rid of the cigars. Hey, the book is really terrific, and I thank you for being so gracious with your time with me in, oh, uh, in running through some of the anecdotes, because there, there, there's some funny no, stuff I, in I, here. I admire you for your showing that talk radio can, in fact, be reasonable and not uh, strident and, and biased, so I'm very happy to have you say that about my book. Thank you for saying that. All right, Congressman Barney Frank, the book is titled Frank. I'll chat with you again soon, I hope. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.